Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hey, Digest listeners, this is Amanda Clute. Uh, this week on the show, we are rerunning one of my favorite interviews we've ever done on the show. It is with Ruth Reichel. Uh, we are talking about her memoir that came out this year, Save Me the Plums. It's an amazing book. You should buy it if you haven't bought it yet. It's all about her decade at Gourmet Magazine and the ups and downs that she experienced there. So stay tuned for Ruth, and I hope you enjoy. Ruth came in to talk about her new memoir, Save Me the Plums, a book where she goes into her history as the editor of Gourmet, one of the biggest food publications in in the history of the entire planet. <laughs> right? That That is right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of her memoirs, but this one I think especially spoke to me because I've been covering food and food media for so long, and Gourmet was such an important part of my upbringing. Uh, and I just love it when she throws in some good gossip about Condé Nast, about her rivalry with Epicurious, mm-hmm. uh, what it was like to go from being the New York Times restaurant critic, which was a very prominent job, to an even more prominent job and get paid seven times the amount she was getting paid before. Seven X. Seven X your critic salary. Silicon Valley would be really happy. Yeah. (laughs) She moved to Berkeley when she was really young. She wrote Mm -hmm. a cookbook at the age of 21. Yep. Completely redefined the LA Times food section, Mm -hmm. went on to redefine- And she cooked at a restaurant in Berkeley? Yeah, I think she was a partner at a restaurant mm-hmm. in Berkeley. Or in a co-op, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and then was restaurant critic, as you said, at the LA Times, and then ran the entire food section. This was back when it was, I don't know, 60-plus pages every single week in print, and there was a test kitchen and all kinds of pieces of content she had to oversee, so pretty mm-hmm. big job, uh, and then became the New York Times restaurant critic and then gourmet. And every step of the way, I feel like she kind of redefined that role, mm-hmm. right? Like, she wasn't as the New York Times restaurant critic, she was the first to review. She was she she totally upended the star system and threw stars at she did. restaurants that were you know in China like little noodle shops yeah, that had and never Japanese restaurants and gotten had the a, uh, critical gaze. Yeah, she had a very populist view on on what deserved attention and what deserved accolades. Um, one of her famous reviews, she wore a disguise until the Cirque to see how normal people were treated, uh, and that kind of rocked the restaurant world at the time. Yeah, disruptors. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. Right. Uh, and at Gourmet, I think she came in and wanted to tell more important stories, wanted to... I think she told stories that we are used to now in food journalism, Mm -hmm. where there was real investigation, there was real reporting, and also there was a curiosity for other cultures. So a lot of the texture and nuance that we have the pleasure of experiencing on a day-to-day basis uh, in our field can be traced back to a lot of her work. I think so. Anyway, here is Ruth Reichel. For our listeners who might not be familiar with Gourmet, for our very, very, very young listeners, can you tell us what what was Gourmet Magazine before you got there, and then how did it evolve over your 10 years? When I took it over, it was almost 60 years old, and it had become this icon, and I thought, I mean, this is my opinion, so I... I'm sure there are many people who disagree with this, but I thought it had become very stodgy and kind of a place where rich people went to um, get recipes for their cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, there were a lot of people who were serious cooks, and the, the recipes were um, what one friend of mine described as lifted pinky. Mm. Um, and to take vacation, you know, to plan their vacations to resorts. So when they went to Thailand, for instance, they would the recipe would be the mint that was put on your sheets before you went to bed at the seaside resort that you stayed in, right. instead of um, you know the boxing 
chicken or pad thai. Um, and um, to me, I mean, I took it over in 99, which was such an important time for food in America. And I really thought that a food magazine ought to be dealing with political issues and social issues and science issues that the conversation about food really needed to be expanded. And that's what I tried to do with the magazine. Why did you want to write this book? Um, I felt like I had the extraordinary privilege of being in at the end of the golden age of American magazines. Mm -hmm. And I thought people should know what a wonderful time. I mean, I, Condé Nast, when I was there, was run by Cy Newhouse, who was a strange and wonderful man, but really one of the last publishers in America who believed that if you gave people quality, they would pay for it. Mm -hmm. And the idea that he literally handed me a magazine, said, make it great, spend whatever you need to spend to do that, and then left me to do it. Um, who does that? <laughs> and who, who gets to do that? So I thought, one, that people should know that there was a time when that kind of publishing ap mm -hmm. actually existed and that it was real. Right. And secondly, I thought that, I mean, I, what did I know about being a manager? I mean, I was a writer, um, a restaurant critic. Um, I'd spent most of my career at newspapers. And suddenly, I was boss of 65 people. So I also thought that my experience of learning to be a boss might be useful to people because my way of running that magazine, and it's to Condé Nast's credit that they let me do it, was very non-hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And I think very much the way women do it as opposed to the way most men do it. And I thought that was useful. And then I also thought that, you know, my experience as a working mother, which is difficult, mm -hmm. um, might be useful to people. And is a big, it's a big part of the book, too. It's, yeah. And, you know, it was an important thing for me. I mean, I loved being a mother and I loved my work. And those things shouldn't be in conflict. But in America today, they are. Right. Do you think if you had written this book immediately after, because you wrote a book in between. I wrote leaving, two books in between. Two books in between. Yeah. Would it have been a different book if you had written it sooner yes. after you left? Yes. Um, one, I think I was so depressed after the magazine closed. I mean, I really felt that I had failed the readers of Gourmet. I mean, we had almost a million subscribers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they talk about pass along. So like 5,000 monthly, if I'm sorry, 5 million monthly right. readers um, who loved the magazine. And I felt that I had failed them. And above all, that I had failed my staff, that somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I should have prevented them from closing the magazine. And so, you know, for the first at least year after the magazine closed, I was in a not a great space. And it would have been a much less celebratory book. Mm -hmm. Also, I think with when you're writing memoir, it's really good to get a little distance. Space, yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, a lot of this book is sort of where food was in 1999 when I took it over. And I needed a little distance to see how far the impact it had would be. Yeah. Everything, everything has come since then. I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. really, it, it's such a different time now. How soon was it after it folded? Um, do you feel like other publications started picking up the slack of what you were doing there, or have they never? Um, I don't think that the Epicurean magazines have done that at all, mm -hmm. which makes me sad. Um, but definitely what happened was mainstream publications pretty quickly started seeing that there was a space for um, 
really serious food journalism, for investigative journalism. Um, it's still extraordinary to me. In 2006, I gave a speech to the editorial writers of America. Where, and so it's like, you know, the editorial people who won the editorial pages of every newspaper in America. And I did this like 20 minute plea. Please cover food. These are the issues that you should be thinking about. And at that time, they were shocked. They didn't know about wow. confinement animal facilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I gave a lecture at Yale in probably that same year or maybe the year before, um, again, where I was talking about the devastation of the oceans and, you know, all the problems with with antibiotics and pesticides and Nobody knew those things. I mean, it's it's very hard to realize how recently all of the many problems of our very broken food system have become part of the public conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think hmm. after Gourmet closed, I mean, I don't think it was because Gourmet closed, but I think it just started, you know, Michael Pollan had written his book and... Um, you know, people started understanding that sugar was a problem, and um, and the mainstream publications, the newspapers, the New Yorker, uh, the Atlantic, Harper's, Mother—I mean, they all started suddenly seeing that food was something that they should be paying attention to. In the last chapter, when you talk about, or I think it might be the second last chapter, when you talk about the magazine folding, everyone is very surprised. And then there's also this buildup where you are dealing with having to talk to advertisers more and there's a little trouble in the industry. If you look back on that time, was it a huge shock to you? Did you feel this this coming? I thought I would get fired. I did not right, yeah. in a million years imagine that they would fold Gourmet. Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, the renewals were incredible. And it, it was also because the magazine had meant so much to me since I was a little girl. Right. It seemed impossible. I, I, I just couldn't imagine a world without gourmet. And I mean, the truth is that I still don't understand what possessed them to do that. Um, that I mean, there is literally not a day that has passed since and it's 10 years now, almost 10 years, that someone doesn't come up to me and say, mm. I can't tell you how much I miss that magazine. And to throw that away, that kind of connection that the magazine had with the public, right? Um, it, it's unfathomable to me. Well, and these days you see companies like Condé Nast selling magazines to other owners, and you even see people buying them. Like there, are, there is a market for that. Do you think people that just tried, didn't exist back people then? People called me and said, you know, can, can you connect this? me yeah. to sign new house? I'd like to buy. He wouldn't sell it. Did you ever find out why? I think he thought that at some point he would bring it back. Oh. You know, he had brought back, uh, you know, mm -hmm. um, Vanity Fair had been gone for a while. I mean, there, there are a number of magazines that he brought back. And I think he thought, I know he loved the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he thought at some point he'd bring it back. Was it a surprise to you that it wasn't the other food publication that was Bon Appetit? Um... I, Yes, frankly. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I wasn't the only one who was surprised. But um, I, but also I knew that they had not been hit as hard as we had been hit. Mm. The strategy for in terms Gourmet of the in terms sales. of ad sales mm. had always been that we went for luxury ads. And Bon Appetit, even though our demographics were exactly the same, mm. really, they had – always accepted, you know, a lot of the kind of ads we didn't that the advertising right. strategy for gourmet was you can't have Tiffany's and Campbell's soup. In, uh, I see. And so we're going to go for, you know, the high-end luxury ads, and that meant rejecting the packaged goods. So, and then if that market goes away, then and, you're in trouble. And yes. And, you know, so if—, if in a recession, if, if Tiffany's suddenly decides they're only going to spend half as much money on advertising this year, mm -hmm. are they going to cut Vogue or Gourmet? I mean, and that was our situation across the board. 
So in terms of like a reverence to the magazine, you could make the case that it was actually a respect thing that the powers of be would rather not advertise Campbell's Soup and just fold the whole thing than take ads that they didn't feel comfortable with. Well, no, with. at that point there were I mean right. in the recession, it, yeah. you can't you can't pivot that quickly right. and say, "Okay, now, I mean our biggest advertising categories were automotive, mm-hmm. banking, beauty, uh, travel, high-end appliances. Um, and <laughs> virtually that whole market right. was hit. The specificity in which you uh, in which you detail like Vikings' inability to spend money on ads because they weren't building big buildings anymore is crazy. It's like, wild. And you don't really think about the fact that, you know, okay, maybe you won't buy a stove today and that's going to hurt them, but not that much. But, you know, if they're going to put 5,000 stoves into a building, mm-hmm. suddenly you go, oh, that market vanishes, you're in trouble. Yeah, and I think I, I was covering the restaurant industry back then, and it, you started seeing it in restaurants. You started seeing restaurants closing. You started seeing, I know, restaurants cutting prices. Like Thomas Keller started serving a, a menu out in the salon. But I never thought it would happen, that anything would affect gourmet. I never thought about the trickle-down effect of people just spending less money on their homewares. Yeah, well, and I mean, I still think that you know gourmet was profitable for... 67 of its 69 years. Mm. I mean, doesn't that mean that you get a pass? Right. Can can we just float by (laughs) with Vogue's revenues for this one? (laughs) Can you you talk a little bit about how uh, I I think people wouldn't have any, I certainly wouldn't have any idea of like how lavish the role of an editor was back then. I think, you know, Mm. after Graydon Carter and, and Anna Wintour, like, are, will we have another person who is like that? Who is? I, I think those days have gone forever. <laughs> yeah. That you get a clothing allowance. I mean, virtually, Condé Nast paid for everything. Well, there's a turning point in the book where you accept the driver. Yes. Because you're someone who takes the subway everywhere. You're, I don't want to sit in traffic, blah, blah, blah. And then you kind of give in and accept this driver. And it's like you accepting this lifestyle and this new, I don't know, this new life that you're in. Well, it was kind of like, okay, I know I'm just a visitor <laughs> in this world, but maybe I should enjoy it while I'm here yeah. after a couple of years of saying, no, I don't take cars. No, I don't want to be that person. And suddenly it was like, it's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. But um, it was, I mean, also, I, I kind of fell in love with Mustafa. Right, your driver. The, the driver. <laughs> I mean, my whole family just loved him. My husband loved him. Um, you know, he's just a wonderful man. And he sort of said, but you're taking you're taking money out of me. If you don't take cars. Right. Then you, I don't you, have a job. You're, you're not giving me work. And I, that sort of made sense to me that, mm-hmm. oh, I should. Yeah, I can give him work. Yeah. But it did seem like heady days for for Condé Nast, especially like in Tina Brown's memoir, which documents the years right before I think you got there. Right. It's very similar where she has a clothing allowance and a driver and is just out all the time. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, we don't even have offices here. <laughs> yeah. And no. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I had never had an office, yeah. right? Amanda, and you so, have a little plant. I do have a plant. <laughs> yeah. I have a desk plant. <laughs> and my office was enormous. <laughs> you know, it was huge. I had my own private bathroom. I mean, <sighs> it was crazy. stunning to me. And, you know, and I had a secretary. I mean, I never had any of these things before. Well, and in the book you say your salary was like seven times what you were making at the New York Times as a restaurant critic, which is just crazy to me. Yeah, well, and I literally didn't know people made that kind of money. I mean, when, you know, when I was first considering the job and, you know, I said to my agent, I mean, you know, I don't want to go work at Condé Nast. And, um, <laughs> and besides, you know, what could they pay? What, twice what I'm making now? And Kathy said, Ruth, I think you're looking at a major multiple. <laughs> She's like, you'll have enough money to bribe your kids way into college. <laughs> if only. <laughs> so you think those days are totally done? We're never going to see never going to see Lux editors anymore? I, I, I think those days are over. And I also think it was very much a function of Cy Newhouse, mm-hmm. um, who um, – Really, I think one way he kept people, you know, was he made it, um, he made working there so luxurious that um, people rarely quit. (laughs) And one of the, I think, 
more interesting chapters to someone who comes up in the digital space is going to be the one about Epicurus and Gourmet's relationship to Epicurus. Can you talk about how that how that came to be? Um, you know, I, I when I was writing that chapter, I honestly couldn't. I thought this can't have been true, <laughs> and I kept calling, you know, all the people I worked with and said, "This didn't really happen, right?" Um, and they all said, "No, no, that that really happened." Which was, I had been pushing and pushing and pushing to get a gourmet.com, uh, which, you know, I, I, I saw the internet coming. And from the moment I got there, it was like, we need to have a gourmet.com. And Sai was, no, 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 no. Um, we're very happy with, we have Epicurious. We take all of the content from all of, you know, every magazine that publishes recipes. The, the recipes all go to Epicurious. We have the biggest food site on the web. We're very happy with that. And no, you can't have a website. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, one day, years in, he comes to me and says, okay, I want you to build gourmet.com as quickly as possible. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. And I start literally babbling about all these plans we, we have and we're going to you know, take. I had this idea for doing something called soup opera, where we would <laughs> we would have a little scripted thing from the kitchen every day, and that people would get to know our cooks, and we would go for into the restaurants we reviewed. We would yeah. go into the kitchens, mm -hmm. and we were going to have cooking classes, learn to cook with. Greg. And I'm going on and on, and I and then I say, and of course, all the recipes. All the recipes are really going to drive traffic because the thing that people most want on the web are recipes. And Sai so says, well, you can't have your recipes. Every recipe published in Gourmet will continue to belong to Epicurious. I'm a mass aggregator. <laughs> I was, excuse me? I mean, I, I literally thought I hadn't heard that. That can't be right. And then he said, well, any recipes that you care to uh, to create outside of the magazine, you can use on your website. And I thought, oh, great. The cooks are going to love this. <laughs> now they not now make more recipes. <laughs> um, but that was actually the case, um, that um, if you came to Gourmet.com and you went to a recipe, you got kicked over to Epicurious. And if you're on Epicurious, you're getting recipes from everywhere, so you don't know that things are tested to the same rigorous degree that the gourmet recipes are. Yeah, exactly, which drove you know our kitchen people crazy. Mm -hmm. And... From the publisher's point of view, Epicurious is going to get the ad revenue. Right. I mean, they're, we're not going to get it. I mean, if the recipes, which is the most wanted content. At the time, did Epicurious have their own publisher? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that publisher was going out with the recipes from everybody and, and selling against that. Yes, yes. Wild. Um, and um, it cost a lot of money <laughs> to build a website and staff it. And um, it, it was. Uh, what year was this? What year did you launch Gourmet.com? We launched. We actually it took us two years to build the site. Um, so we launched it perfectly in the beginning in January of two thousand and eight. Oh well, <laughs> perfect time. <laughs> perfect timing. What do you think about the state of uh, recipe sites right now? I you know I'm sort of stunned by how good the recipes on the web are. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. know, in the first few years, they weren't that good, but um, you couldn't trust them. And now there's so much, I mean, well, there's so much great content, period, on the web. I mean, um, you know, you guys are doing like really serious journalism, which none of us would ever have predicted <laughs> in the beginning. Me neither. Um, and, you know, really, you know, driving a conversation, which is really important. And, you know, the people who put recipes on the web have understood that if they want return traffic, the recipes better work. Mm -hmm. And they work, and people are thinking of innovative ways to do them. And the video content has gotten really good. And um, I think it's a struggle if you're a magazine. I mean, it. it it would be interesting to me today to think about what is the function of a magazine? Aren't the recipes on the web in some ways 
more useful mm. to people. They can see them. They can see it being constructed. So what is it that an Epicurean magazine should be today? And like, I think it's very different. Bring? Yes. Yeah. What, 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 is, what can you do that the web can't do? And I, I, think, I think magazine editors are struggling with that mm-hmm. very much. Do you still do you still pick up the food magazines in print? Sometimes. And I think related question is just like what would your what would your magazine be if you could start from scratch right now? I don't know. I mean, I I I feel like as I go off on this book tour, I better start thinking about <laughs> that because I'm I imagine you're not the only one who's going right. to ask me that. Well, I feel like you're always talking about. Um, Issues with farming and sustainability, and I think those issues continue to oh, well, be would, a problem. And I would certainly do that, but you know, you can't hit people over the head with it. Yeah. You, I mean, you can't turn into Mother Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, people go to Mother Jones to read that, and you have to be very judicious about how much yep. you put in. I mean, people don't want to read that farm workers are slaves every, every month. Every day, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would certainly continue that, and I would, I mean, I, I think, you know, being a restaurant critic today is really interesting, and I mean, I love the fact that we've got this new generation mm-hmm. of, you know, young, um, often queer, um, often people of color, uh, female, uh, it's, it's a new generation, and they're thinking out of the box, yeah. and it's really exciting, and I, I you know, I think... In, in the same way, I think you've ha- you have to think about what is the purpose of a magazine. I think today you have to think what is the purpose of a restaurant critic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's surely not just telling you how to spend your money. Mm-hmm. Right. What if the financial models make sense to you? Like, I guess you didn't have the opportunity back. Like, did you guys know what SpawnCon was? Is that a is that a totally new thing with our SpawnCon? Like sponsored, sponsored content, content and oh, you know, they were called advertorials back advertorials. then. Advertorials. Uh, okay. Um, I, I was so opposed to. I mean, and I actually think that one of the things that happened at Condé Nast was they would get an across the board buy of something, and one of the things I really always objected to was. Um, advertising that covered editorial, you know, a pull-out piece where mm-hmm. you'd, you'd have to open it. And I wouldn't take them. I would just say, you know, I think this is insulting to the readers. What you're saying is that the ad is more important than the editorial, and I won't run them. And they would say, but, you know, you're the only editor in the building who won't run them. And I would... That's what they're saying to all the other ones, to get everybody it, to just... Yes. <laughs> and I would just say, no, I, I, you know, there are things that I draw the line mm-hmm. at, and that's one of them. And actually, one of the biggest fights I had when I got to Gourmet is they used to have something called Let's Eat Out, which was paid restaurant ads and it was it was a kind of thick section at the back of the book they were small but um and it was it was not marked advertising and it was actually listed in the table of contents and i said you can't pretend that this is edited and it was a huge fight wow and my publisher said but if you label it advertising no one will want to be in it and like, I said, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's why. Right. And she said, you know, but it's going to take. This is really going to hit our bottom line. And I said, you know, you can't have it both ways. And that's sort of how I feel about SpawnCon. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's killing the golden goose. I mean, at the point where you, as a reader, literally can't tell the difference between what's been paid. And what you've actually done as journalists, why buy a magazine? Right. And they always say, like, oh, well, the reader's so smart, they can figure it out. But they can't always figure it out. Like, I can't always figure it out. You have to look hard. Right. It's like, well, what's the point? And, you know, and there's that wonderful quote from Diana, who was uh, my art director for a long time, who's wonderful and talented and really brilliant. And she said in her first day in, in a meeting to the, to the advertising staff, my job as the art director is to make – she said, the advertisers are like cockroaches. Mm-hmm. They – the minute we create a new design, mm-hmm. 
they colonize it yeah. and copy it and try to make their content look like the editorial, and my job is to stay one step ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And there was this horrified gasp because, of course, she was talking to the people who sell those ads and who love it when their clients <laughs> are thrilled that oh, yeah. it looks like it's advertising. And you know, after I left, one of the things I did was go to Guilt Taste, which was an experiment in sponsored content, actually. And I said, you know, as long as let's just have have a model where it's right out front. This magazine, this online magazine, is paid for by this company. Yeah. By this company, and I think we did really great journalism there for a year until they pulled the plug on us. Mm-hmm. But um, it's much the more idea, honest. It, I, it felt clean to me. You know, there's so many ways that you're you know equivocating all the time. You know. You put that expensive watch on the chef you're shooting, mm, mm-hmm. you know, and then you're the advertiser buys a page. God, I didn't even think of that. Wow. It reminds me of something in your book where you talk about how there are a couple instances where you say you don't want to be the squeaky wheel. But then obviously there are all kinds of fights that you had to have. How did you navigate that? How did you figure out what when do you have the fight when do you try to just be like you quote unquote good girl as you called it i i am truly i am so not a fighter but there you know i did spend 20 years in newspapers and there are just some things that seemed really important to me and so when it's when it's really important i mean when you feel like um you're going to be a lesser person if you let that happen um, when you don't want, you wouldn't want your kid to know that you did that. I mean, that's sort of where you draw the line, you know. That if, if I, I mean, I would actually think, you know, what if if Nick kn- knew that I had done this, would he be ashamed of me? Wow. And you never want your kid to be ashamed. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, elsewhere that you wish you managed up better. It's sort of everywhere I've been. Um, as an employee, my have my best friends have been the secretaries, the copy editors, uh, not the bosses. And um, stupidly, when I was at the New York Times, I didn't take the big wigs out to eat, mm. even though, you know, you got to do that. You, you got to <laughs> do that. But I, to be honest, it never occurred to me mm-hmm. until. I was sort of out of the job, and I realized everybody else did that. You know, they took the editor to dinner. They took, you know, they took all the. I took all the people who couldn't afford to go out to right. eat, out to eat, and <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, it's just, you know, how I spent a lot of time in Berkeley. What can I say? <laughs> um, it doesn't occur to me to, you know, try and make friends with with power. Right. And, you know, I later wished that I had become friends with Cy. Mm-hmm. Graydon and David and Anna all spent a lot of time with him. And he wanted to spend more time with me, but he made me so uncomfortable. I mean, I really <laughs> admired him, but he's an, he's deeply uncom- was a deeply uncomfortable person. And um, I felt badly that I hadn't sort of made that effort. Did you talk to them? Were they able to break him and get past that initial uncomfortableness? Well, David certainly. David really loved him and said, you know, I mean, he he enjoyed his time with him. And I didn't know either Graydon or Anna well enough to ask them. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get along with him? (laughs) Yeah. And you think if you had been closer to him, then at least you would have... Might have made it harder to close close the magazine. I probably would have known more about what was Mm -hmm. going on. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. On a different note, there's a, a point, a few points in the book where you're talking about how 
it almost seems like it's humility coming across where you're saying, oh, how, little old me, how did I get the gourmet job? Uh, I'm not qualified to do this. Like You thought they were interviewing you for a critic job. But you were the New York Times restaurant critic. Before that, you ran the LA Times food section, which at the time was like 70 pages a week. Don't like who else could have done that job? Well, someone who was a seasoned editor. I mean, I I, I really did. I, I'm not putting that on. I mean, mm-hmm. I I really did feel like they were crazy to ask me to run that magazine. Um, I, you know, when I ran the L.A. Times food section, they kept saying to me, you know, we'll give you management lessons. Mm. And but they never did. And I mean I can't tell you the stupid mistakes I made like not under you know promoting yeah. people into what turned out to be management jobs which in newspapers are very different right. than other jobs. I mean I just you know I I promoted people in ways that I just didn't understand and <laughs> nobody had ever said to me you know this is how you so I knew what really bad mistakes you can make if you mm-hmm. don't know how to manage people. Right. But that was a pretty small staff. And I really thought, you know, but again, you know, when I said, you know, I don't know anything about managing. I'm terrible at managing money, which is completely true. Um, and, you know, when I said that to James Truman, he said, and I don't know if he remembers saying this, but I, it resonated so strongly with me. He said, well, you won't have to do that. Um, do you think Anna Wintour knows anything about budgets? Right. <laughs> right. And you're I think, the visionary and you have a managing editor who runs your budget. Right. And, and I, I thought that was probably true, but clearly it was not true. And um, when I got in there, and I mean, I really I didn't know what I was doing. It, it was like walking into a completely foreign land. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were underwater for a long period of time, or once you got there and met everybody and had the first meeting, did you feel like okay, this is this is going to be okay? Oh no, I I I was underwater for a long. Well, first of all, you know, I, this is how stupid I was about management. <laughs> you know, I I negotiated when I finally agreed that I would do the job. It was January, and I said, you know, I'm going to stay at the New York Times through the end of March because I don't want to just walk out and leave them with no critic. And uh, then I want a month off. Um, So I'll start this job on May 1st. And so after the announcement gets made, Sai says, will you come into the offices and meet the staff? And I you know, I said, well, why? Um, you know, I'm not starting there till May 1st. What's the point of going in? And he said, no, you really have to come meet the staff. And I, I go in and I meet the staff. And it, for the first time, it hits me that these people are terrified. <laughs> of course they're terrified. None of them knows if they have a job. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I can't just walk out of here and say, see you in three months. Like, there goes my month's vacation. <laughs> um, and so I said, I'll come in every day. And so for three, two months, I went to the New York Times every day and I went to Gourmet every day. And then I had to do book tour on top of it. And so I was like really – I had no idea what was going on in the magazine. I really didn't. You know, I mean I would sort of wander around <laughs> in this fog. Um, and it wasn't until I hired a managing editor and – First of all, the month went away completely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to say to Condé credit, um, the head of HR called me um, at um, the beginning of April and said, we hear you've been going into the office every day. Because we were in a separate building, so they right. didn't really know what was going on. And I said, well, yeah. I mean, I realized I kind of couldn't leave them in the lurch. And she said, we have to pay you. You, you, this is kind of nasty. You can't work for free. Right. So they started paying me in April. Um, but um, at that point, I hired a managing editor, and he just made everything. You know, he Larry is wonderful, and 
um, incredibly competent, and he brought me along pretty quickly. I mean, he I followed him around for a month, learning mm. the production and how magazines work. How yeah, really learn, and he created a whole new system, and I pretty much relied on him to run the. I mean, to run the management mm-hmm. end of the magazine. I think it's a good lesson for any woman with imposter syndrome or or any man who like if you feel like you're not qualified like Ruth went through this and she figured it out. Well, <laughs> like what, you were highly qualified for the job, it was hard, you learned it and Well, and and the secret is you hire people who are smarter yeah. than you are and you trust them. You do not get in their way. You realize that your job is running interference for them. But, you know, I mean, I didn't tell my art directors how to do what they did. I didn't tell Larry how to do what he – I mean, you trust people. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me, the secret of, um, you know, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Find hire people who do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I have a question. So there's a chapter where you talk about the – the, the controversy over the cupcake cover right. of, uh, of the magazine. But I was curious if you could, as a former restaurant critic to magazine editor to uh, you know cultural critic now, uh, author, could you give us the trajectory of the cupcake? Like where was the cupcake 30 years ago and then what does it mean to us as a food society now? Cupcakes were 30 years ago, they were considered something for children. Or they were, you know, snowballs and hostess cupcakes. And that was pretty much it. You know, grown-ups didn't eat cupcakes, and certainly people who considered themselves gourmets did not eat cupcakes. And so we put – we did this children's cake – and it, was, it was a brilliant idea that Gina Marie had that what if I made a, a birthday cake and then I put little cupcakes around the top and then the kids could each have a cupcake. It's the right size for them. And then the parents can eat the cake. And it was beautiful. And we put it on the cover. And people started writing letters. I mean, unbelievable letters. How dare you put a cupcake on the cover? This is one woman actually said, I found this so disgusting I had to tear off the cover and throw it away so I didn't have to look at it. Look at it. And um, now granted I fanned the flames because we kept running those letters. And the more we ran them, the more came in. And then people would defend the cupcake. But Right around that time, the cupcake stores started mm-hmm. opening, the mm. Magnolia. Magnolia. the Magnolia, and, then, and there were a bunch of them, and and people were, you know, sort of grown-ups were going off to eat these beautiful little cupcakes. Um, but I think that for the people who considered themselves the, you know, the elite <laughs> eaters, it was a sign of how populist the whole Mm. notion of eating had become. And it was as if we had put a taco truck on the cover. Mm -hmm. It was a sign that food trends were coming up instead of going down, which is exactly what happened with fashion, right? For years, you know, poor people copied what Mm -hmm. couture was doing, and then suddenly couture was copying what poor people were doing. And... um, for the world of food in the early days of gourmet, so we're talking about 1941, the people who considered themselves gourmets were mostly fat old white men, fat rich old white men. I mean, that, that you know, James Beard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, there are lots of – but and, – and the magazine was actually in the early days was filled with ads for liquor and – hunting beer. I mean, because that's mm-hmm. that's who the audience was. I mean, the history of American food at magazines is really interesting because, like, you know, Bon App starts in the 50s, and it's suddenly, it all has to do with, you know, converting war machines into food machines and ammunition into fertilizer and persuading women to get out of the factories that they had been running very happily for years and go back into the kitchen. (laughs) And suddenly, you know, food magazines are now for homemakers. 
And Gourmet was slow to adapt that, actually. Um, but eventually, they sort of realized that the people who cooked had changed. But they, the magazine was still very much aimed at um, the elite. Mm-hmm. And so the cupcake became this symbol of this is not an elite magazine anymore. And the people who thought that they owned the notion of fine food were they got scared. I mean, it, it's it's a lot like what's happened in politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they just got scared. They saw something being taken away from them. They, Wait a minute, this used to be ours. Who are these kids who think that they can make fancy cupcakes? Cupcakes aren't fancy. Um, you know, who are these people mm-hmm. who think that you know we want to eat um, Korean tacos um, and that that's fine food? Um, I mean, so for me, it was very much, I mean, it took me a while to understand what was going on. But when I did, it was exactly emblematic of what was happening in food, which was that food was becoming popular culture. And for us at Gourmet, that cupcake exemplified that, that Mm -hmm. it had never been popular culture. You know, when I was just out of college, had no money, living in a loft on the Lower East Side, we didn't go out to eat. You know, we went, we, we, what little money we had, we spent on movies, books, going to museums. Eating out was not, was not the it event. Just, it, it just wasn't, we couldn't afford it and we didn't think we could afford it. Today, if you're just out of college, you go out to eat. It's just part of what you put in your budget. It's, it's unthinkable that you wouldn't because the role of restaurants and eating and food has changed dramatically in American culture over the last 50 years. And um, the people who had owned restaurants didn't like what was happening. You know, suddenly mm-hmm. <clears throat> white tablecloth restaurants weren't the best restaurants. Um, yeah. And People didn't dress up to go out, and um, you didn't have to read French or Italian when you went right. out. No barriers to entry, and they were loud, you know. Yeah. And that was that was culturally very upsetting. Did you get pushback for the international locations and foods you were covering as well? <laughs> we got pushed not so much for what locations we were mm-hmm. covering but how we were covering them right like De- you were covering Thailand differently as you said than you would have or they would have in the 60s right and in the first issue i mean we had a trip to laos and it was very much eating on the street mm-hmm. in laos and the letters were outraged wow what makes you think i would go and you know mm-hmm. eat this kind of stuff <laughs> and you know if i go to laos i want to stay in a beachside resort um, I can't give this to my travel agent. Uh, it was a lot of pushback. And it almost reminds me of the pushback you got at the New York Times, right? When you were reviewing restaurants and kind of putting restaurants that weren't just European on the same playing field. Yeah, she has she has destroyed the, the star system <laughs> that we spent so long building up. She's giving little little Japanese noodle joints three stars. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Do you do you think now in 2019? Uh, is there still work to be done with criticism, um, or or have that has that barrier totally broken been broken down? Oh no, I think I think there's plenty of work to be done with criticism. I mean, if I were a critic today, one of the things I hate about New York is how segregated restaurants are. If you want to if you want to see a really diverse clientele in a restaurant, you have to go up to Harlem. Um, you know it. it that's, I mean, one of the great things about restaurant criticism is you can actually talk about that. Yep. Um, people will read almost anything in a restaurant review. Mm-hmm. But we should be ashamed of ourselves, you know? I mean, um, everybody likes to eat. Everybody spends money on food. And um, people shouldn't feel uncomfortable coming into any restaurant. What is your opinion on the way that uh, Instagram has affected these like viral food trends? Like, if you were still a critic and you were assigned to write about 
I don't know, the cronut or something like that. Like, how would you how would you approach these things that are the, the, where the publicity is just radically different than it's ever been? I mean, it's really fascinating. I actually just got on Instagram. I you know, I was what thought. Well, I'm a word person, right? I, you're but, very good on Twitter. I'm sure you're very but, good on Instagram. So I'm I'm I've only just started using Instagram, and it's very compelling, actually. <laughs> um, <clears throat> It really is. I find myself looking at it oh like my God, 20 it's a, it's times addictive. a day. Yeah. And it's a an int- really fascinating way to connect with people. And I have to say one of the things that I do think about is if I were still a magazine editor, you have to think about photography in a different way now because everybody is a food photographer, mm-hmm. you know, which was certainly not true before the iPhone. Um so, you know, we're all we all know about filters and framing and we're looking at things differently. Um, I, you know, I, I truly am a populist. So I kind of love all of these crowdsourced mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the idea that somebody discovers a cronut and it goes viral, not because, you know, somebody who was paid to write right. about it, put it in on Eater or, you know, in in a magazine or in a newspaper, but because, you know, some person went and said, this is the most delicious thing I ever ate in my life. And hundreds of people followed that. I mean, I kind of love it. Yeah, I I think the Cronut is actually not my favorite example of this kind of thing because the Cronut is also delicious. Well, yeah, that's the thing about the Cronut. Like the man who invented it is a brilliant pastry chef. chef. It's very delicious food stuff. And a lovely man. Yeah, and so nice. (laughs) Like good for him. I think it's when you're talking about like rainbow bagels bagels. and just things that aren't that good but just look really good for the photo. I think that's when it gets a little trickier. Yeah, well, um, but, you know, again, (laughs) we all we're learning these things and – I think anything that makes people think that, you know, rather than just follow blindly. I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. restaurant criticism, the 50s. Craig Claiborne was the only voice in the room, right? So if he said a restaurant was great, everybody right. went there. Um, today, you've got like a million voices, right? And so people have to make up their own minds. I don't think anybody blindly follows mm-hmm. any anybody anymore. I mean, I, I think we're, we're learning. It reminds me very much of my father, who was German, said that his father read eight newspapers every day. Um, you know, he, he read it right across the spectrum, you know, from left to right, and he wanted to hear everyone's opinions. Um, I hope we will get back to that place instead of all of us, like, listening to what we want to hear. Mm-hmm. But right now, with the very young, like, Instagrams, you're sort of seeing it, and you do have to, like, figure out, you know, is this someone I believe? It looks <laughs> right. good. I'm going to go. I mean, I think anything that, that gets us to, you know, think for ourselves is good. Well, I think it pushes thing. the critics to be better, too, because someone's already telling you, this is what it looks like, this is how much it costs, this is what we think is good or bad. You have to be more artful in your reviews. You have to tell a better story. I think you, and to your point, go behind the scenes, talk about the labor, talk about the racism, and talk about everything else if you're going to be a good restaurant critic. Yeah. And and thank God we're getting those voices now, you know, different voices, you know, a, a piece that says, you know, people like me didn't used to eat in this restaurant. Right. Right. Um, a couple of years ago, you said, that New York was the best place to eat in America, but that you uh, were not optimistic about its future. I, I still feel that way. Uh, you say, I mean, think, I think you said directly, like, restaurants that you loved were just being, uh, the rent was just getting too high, and they were successful, and they still had to close. Yeah. Uh, are we doomed mm-hmm. here? I, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's only New York. I mean, I think generally, um, you know, cities are becoming unlivable for ordinary people. And um, many cities are doomed. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when Anita Lowe closed, it, it, I mean, here was a restaurant that mm. was really good, run by a really talented woman, um, staff who liked her, um, full right. all the time. And if that doesn't work <laughs> as, right. as a, I mean, not in the fanciest location, um, it is now almost. Um, yeah. 
what does that mean if that's not sustainable anymore? And, you know, are we doomed to um, fast food because that's where you make the money? Well, and the talking to our editors around the country, you see this as a growing trend um, in some cities more than others that the investors are going for restaurants that are super safe. And so any chance you have for more small, creative places is kind of going out the window. And there's that. There's rents. Mm -hmm. There's the fact that the dishwashers can't afford to live in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I'm I was born in New York. I hate the Disneyfication of this city. Uh, the well, I, you're going to the Hudson Yards opening tonight. What's, I, what? What are you expecting? Well, I, I, I want I want to see it, but um, I hate the idea that we we're about to have a gated community, essentially mm-hmm. a gated community, in the middle of the city that is going to be the kind of place that people never have to leave. Right. I mean, one of the great things about New York is that we're constantly bumping up against each other, uh-huh. and um, you know, it's what I love about the subway. Right. You get on yeah. the subway and you see everyone, and the idea that the people who live there aren't going to have to ever move out of that space. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I want to see it. Yeah, I mean, I think we all want to see it, and we're all slightly horrified by the concept of it. Is it hard for you to enjoy those things? I mean, we wrote, uh, Megan McCarran wrote something that the the scariest thing for her in, in encountering these kinds of food halls or, or luxe malls was that the people who were curating often got the thing right. You know, like, oh, that oh, like is the gym I like. That is the restaurant I like. I do love Mamafuku. I do love Milk Bar. It's like these grand high powers of enormous wealth um, are scaring us a little bit with their, you know, precise choices. Well, but here's the thing about those choices. They may be right for right now. Mm-hmm. Probably not for two years from now. Right. And are they going to keep up? Um, you know, there, there's a certain. Hmm. Oh, you can't fake it. You can't. And, and people change. Mm-hmm. And their tastes change. And they're changing all the time. And, you know, next year there'll be a better piece of gym equipment. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think. It's not always so. It's curated for this moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't seen it, so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, is it going to be curated for down the road? Right. And, you know, one of the things that's so great about New York is you know you can go. I mean, I, on my way here, I passed um, Ruts and Daughters and Katz's. You know, and you think you know, these are places that have lasted for a hundred years. You know, New, York, New Yorkers have been going to them. Right. For a hundred years. I mean, are people going to be going to the places in Hudson Yards for a hundred years? No, but if we ever enter a, a post-apocalyptic society, the weird upside-down honeycomb structure at Hudson Yards is definitely where I'm going to like well, hang out have, and scout the I rest of the city. They have their own cell network too. So, they do. Yeah. So, so and like electricity network. So if we really? all lose, I think if something power. Really, Jesus, <laughs> if something really happened in the city, I bet the whole thing would just like cocoon and it would just <laughs> yeah, like protect everyone inside up. and blast off. To Mars or something like that. I'm fascinated by this. So on, on yeah. 9-11, you think it just would have... Yeah, I think it, <laughs> Maybe. It would have just yeah. closed up. And like, would, no one in, no yeah. one in, no one out. Hudson Yards on lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, would, it would have been like that thing that Reagan was going to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I guess the only question is then, what's next? Like, what after this book tour? Uh, um... I still owe Random House two novels. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So you're so, you're booked up for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm booked up. In, in, in every is this, sense. This is, is this a follow up to your first novel? No, a yeah. completely different. Completely different. They're two. I I I know what they are. They're two completely different. Mm-hmm. If if we put you under the gun and we were like, you have to go review a restaurant tomorrow. What would what's the first place you would review? In New York. Yeah. Um, God, I haven't been. Well, I actually I went to um, the Standard Grill last night. I am I am a fan of Rocco de Spirito. Oh, right. It Rocco's makes back. It, he's back. It makes me so can happy. Can you tell us who, who Rocco is? He was a, a. I mean, Ruth can probably explain that a little better. But he was such a big deal. Yeah. Like, 
I heard it. God, when yeah. did he go off the scene? Like 15 years ago or 10, yeah, 10 years he, ago? He, he he still had Union Pacific when I mm-hmm. started at Gourmet. And he's a really talented chef. And then he did... He did a TV show. He did show the worst TV show. Called The it Restaurant. Was horrible. It was and in the early days of reality TV, and it wasn't very good. It's a really comfortable restaurant, <laughs> and the food was delicious last night. He was there? He's not only, he's, he's working the line. He's not expediting. He's actually cooking on the line. <laughs> um, and wow. what we had was really delicious. Um, well, Ruth, I should thank you so much for coming on the show. This has this been... This was fun. I mean, it was really fun.